0: You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan.
1: And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but I really do think the end is near.
0: I was going to ask about all of the canned goods on shelves in here and the sandwich board over in the corner, but I guess I was waiting for you to bring it up first.
1: Yeah, I kind of picked up on the apocalyptic tone from both of the movies that we're covering this week. Was kind of hoping that you'd have picked up on it too, but I guess. I guess profits aren't appreciated in their own time.
0: I guess not. Uh, listeners, we've got two of those apocalyptic mood movies coming up for you this week. First up is M. Night Shyamalan's return to the genre with his new film, Knock at the Cabin.
1: And then we're going to be following that up with Kevin's watch list pick... Jeff Nichols' 2011 indie movie, Take Shelter.
0: A storm is coming and not a one of you is prepared for it. Coming up on this episode of Seeing and Believing.
1: My name's Leonard. It's nice to meet you, suppose I'm here to make friends with you and your dads, too. But my heart is broken.
0: Why is it broken?
1: Because of what I have to do today.
0: There is a woman carrying something that looks like a pick with a chain and a mallet head.
1: You see, the four of us have a very important job to do. It might be the most important job
0: in the history of the world. Yes, we're here on episode 367 of Seeing and Believing, and it's the beginning of the year. You know, we're just right at the beginning of February, so... The opening of 2023 maybe seems like a strange time to be talking about the end of all things, but, you know, here we are.
1: I mean, February is objectively the worst month. It's a dark time. The sun is maybe starting to come up a little bit later, but I'm feeling the dead of winter at the moment, so... I don't know. I'm personally feeling a little apocalyptic.
0: I mean, we're up here in the Chicago area. It is 10 degrees outside right now. So Mm -hmm. it's easy to feel a little bit pessimistic. I'll have to quibble with you on February being objectively the worst because January is objectively the worst. (laughs) So at least we're out of those doldrums.
1: Fair enough. And February is shorter than January too. So the end is nigh, maybe, (laughs) at least hopefully for winter anyway.
0: Well, on that optimistic note, we are going to launch into the discussion. We're going to get to Jeff Nichols's version of the apocalypse in our second segment when we talk about Take Shelter. But for now, let's see what M. Night Shyamalan has to do with the subgenre with his new film Knock at the Cabin. Here's the film's official synopsis. While vacationing at a remote cabin, a young girl and her parents are taken hostage by four armed strangers who demand that the family make an unthinkable choice to avert the apocalypse. With limited access to the outside world, the family must decide what they believe before all is lost. So I feel like that synopsis does leave out a very important bit of information, which is that the four armed strangers are led by the ever great Dave Bautista. Mm -hmm. So we'll give the marketing department the benefit of the doubt and Decide. There's some greater design at work there, but we'll get to Dave Bautista here in a second. Oh, yes. For now, let's talk about that word believe that's in the last sentence of that synopsis. It's a great place to start for our discussion for a number of reasons. I don't know about you, Sarah, but while watching this film, I found myself thinking of an earlier film from M. Night Shyamalan, Signs which also centers on a family doing its best to cope with an extreme situation and impending disaster, all while the main character, in the case of science, Mel Gibson's lapsed clergyman, struggling to decide whether the current predicament is mere misfortune and coincidence are part of an incomprehensible providential plan. Hmm. Knock at the Cabin heads in that direction as well, with the central family having to decide not only whether they believe Dave Batista's earnest home invaders about the apocalypse, but also whether they believe that their entire predicament might speak to some sort of cosmic design at work. So let's start there, Sarah. How well do you think Shyamalan does at exploring that theme this time around?
1: Mm, I mean... When I think of signs, I think of a movie that's fairly optimistic, strangely, and Knock at the cabin. Maybe, maybe it's that I'm a little bit more jaded, twenty years on. Maybe M Night Shyamalan is a little bit more jaded, twenty years on. Um, I don't know. I was kind of buying what he was selling for a good chunk of the movie, if just because it was staged so well. And Dave Bautista, who, again, we will get into for sure, um, his character, Leonard, I I believe believes sincerely what he says he believes. And Dave Bautista is very good at getting that across. But in terms of the movie in general, I'm not 100% sure that the movie is fully convinced of its own beliefs. And that kind of led me to feel a bit of cognitive dissonance as I was watching it, because there is a very strong sense of earnestness in the way that the situation is presented and the way that it's played out. Shyamalan's very good at staging action and tension, I think, and he he manages to do that quite well here. But the underlying beliefs that are fueling everybody's actions in the course of the movie... I had a difficult time figuring out how much of those actions I was supposed to believe sincerely and how much of those I was supposed to be trying to take with a grain of salt. I think the best kind of tension is where you can tell that the characters believe what they say they believe, and you also can't tell what is actually right and correct and going on. And I feel like Shyamalan kind of tips his hand a little bit too early here for my taste. So a lot of the tension sort of bled out as soon as I could start to see where the movie was going. And as it continued on, I feel like Shyamalan is is lauded or made fun of for his plot twists. And in this case, um, I don't know that I found anything necessarily surprising here. So a lot of the ways in which I was supposed to suspend my own belief or start to hang my hat on somebody else's beliefs just kind of bled away as the movie went on. How about you? I mean... For
0: me, in in my mind at least, Shyamalan isn't s- his big Achilles heel. Isn't so much the twist, but just endings in general. Mm. I think, th- and that often dovetails with the twists being a little bit hard to swallow in his films. In this case, it's not so much that there's a plot twist that's hard to swallow at the end. It's more just the ending offers a contextualization of everything that we've seen before that. It's just, I can't imagine anybody fully buying into it. It's just a little bit um, too out of left field, I guess, or at least given what the characters understand about the situation, the conclusions they draw about what is happening to them maybe comes out a little bit of left field for me.
1: Yeah, and I mean, for a movie that is telling us repeatedly that it is about faith and it is about belief and it's about what people do when they sincerely believe something pretty genuinely heinous. Um, I think that you kind of have to give the audience the room and the ability to take that leap of faith with those characters as well. And once you start to explain precisely why those beliefs make sense, I think that kind of punctures that act of faith in a way. And so I felt as though the movie was telling me exactly how I was supposed to think and feel and believe about the story that it was telling me at the same time. And that ultimately kind of left me a little bit in the dust. And I I really did truly want to be on board with this movie. I was on board with it for quite a bit of time, especially in the tenseness of some of those set pieces and the confrontations between the family and the home invaders. But as time went on, and people kept explaining precisely why they believed something or why they saw the world the way that they did, um, the movie started to lose me because it kept trying to bring me along a little bit too far. Yeah, I mean,
0: so there might be two ways to approach this film. One one of them is to try to involve yourself in the in the ambiguity of whether these home invaders are true believers who genuinely think that what they're going to do is averting some horrible disaster mm-hmm. or whether they're you know they're they genuinely mean malicious harm to this family and are just using the apocalypse stuff as as a pretext mm-hmm. so there's that ambiguity there but I feel like I agree with you that the ambiguity, yeah, Shyamalan tips his hand a little bit too soon, where mm-hmm. it's not really all that ambiguous what's going on here. The real question is the the horrible choice that the family is faced with, i.e., they're told that they need to sacrifice one of themselves mm-hmm. uh, in order to stop all the mayhem from happening. Um, that the agony of that choice seems to be the central tension of the film. And I think that it actually works for me for mm. a great deal of it. Like that's just such a, you know, a singular quandary. Like if it's basically the trolley problem turned up to 11, right? Like w- would mm-hmm. you sacrifice the person you love most in the world if that meant literally stopping the entire world from blinking out of existence? Mm-hmm interesting enough for me the problem comes in where i don't know that this family feels they they feel it feels a little bit like their relationship is is not flushed out enough for me to really buy into their agony in making that choice mm-hmm. there obviously it's sort of like anybody would have a tough time with it the specificity of their family dynamic isn't really fleshed out with enough care for me to feel like I'm fully involved with it on any level other than sort of a philosophical, abstracted, trolley problem thought experiment rather than a, uh, a drama that I'm deeply emotionally invested in as well.
1: Hmm. Do you think that that's a matter of telling and not showing? Because I feel like I was I was told fairly frequently throughout the movie how much these characters loved each other, and I believe the love of parent to daughter a little bit more than, I believe, the central relationship between the couple. Jonathan Groff plays Eric, and Ben Aldridge plays Andrew, and they're the couple whose daughter first encounters these four strangers in the middle of the woods who come to knock at the cabin and then wreak mayhem. And I believed... Andrew and Eric's love for their daughter I think a little bit more than I believed Eric and Andrew's love for each other and that's not that the movie isn't trying to convince us of that it just felt as though the movie was setting up this couple as kind of an us against the world there is a lot of prejudice against the two of them as a queer couple and a lot of what they're grappling with isn't the Joy of being in a relationship, but the pain of being rejected for their relationship. And so it kind of felt as though their relationship was being drawn as kind of a a negative, as in we're not that or we are not what other people say that we are. And so there's so much underlying pain underneath that relationship that it was really hard to believe the joy that would make such a sacrifice even more unfathomable, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think you might be onto something there. Um, I would agree that there's more electricity, I guess, in the, in the father daughter bonds that we see rather than in, in the bond between uh, the two fathers. Mm I, I, you know, part of it might be a script thing. It might also be a, a performances thing. If you know, going back and thinking about signs, I think that, that for all the guff it gets for the you know the aliens, <laughs> uh, the the resolution of that whole plot, I think it's genuinely a very good family drama. Like mm-hmm. it's it's written uh, subtly, perceptively. The performances, I mean, Mel Gibson, Joaquin Phoenix are just so they're. They're incredible actors. Mm -hmm. And I think they're able to invest the characters in signs with so much subtlety and complexity and like they they feel like genuine people
1: in Mm -hmm. signs. They're lived in.
0: Yeah. And I think in Knock at the Cabin, it kind of feels almost like a like almost like a Twilight Zone episode where the Mm. premise is the point rather than the relationships but for the big emotional beats that Shyamalan puts into this story to land you really need to believe in them as more than just you you need to be invested in that relationship and not just in the premise itself Mm -hmm. and that might be where the the film is kind of being falling between two stools where it's it wants to be kind of a lean thriller and it is lean. It's only about an hour and a half long, which mm-hmm. is nice. Um, but in kind of paring itself down to just the bare essentials, it forgoes kind of that much more lived in dynamic that was present in signs, which means that by the end you're, you're kind of, or at least I wasn't really buying into it enough to make those emotional beats land with the force that Shyamalan obviously wants them to.
1: Yeah, it's funny because you're saying all of that, and I've I've been fairly down on this movie up until this point, but I keep wanting to jump in and sort of defend it a little bit. And maybe it's because um, it's so rare to get kind of a a mid-tier beach read of a movie that's just a thriller that is self-contained and that knows what it's about and is willing to tell you precisely what it's about and is willing to, I guess, commit to that level of kind of a cuckoo premise. <laughs> um, I I did appreciate the way that the movie kind of commits to that tone and is willing to kind of stick with that level in that tone. It doesn't feel as though Shyamalan is trying to be all that pretentious about the themes that he's drawing out. It just feels like he's very earnest about them. And that level of earnestness and that level of Polish and that level of being willing to commit to the tension that he's trying to set out, and then also kind of throw his his elbow in your ribs a little bit and say, "I've heard all of your all of your complaints about old, and I have heard all of your complaints about people like." introducing themselves and giving their their resumes basically like when you first meet them and it kind of feels as though he heard all of those critiques and said okay cool i'm still going to tell the story my way and if it involves having other people introduce themselves to each other by saying this is my name and this is what i do it, it kind of feels as though he's willing to just commit to say this is the way that I tell stories. And if you don't like it, then tough, I'm going to tell my story my way anyway. And maybe that also kind of betrays a little bit of the way that this movie treats people, which is that people are what they do. And so you're going to have your characters introduce themselves as a line cook or as a human rights lawyer, because what they do and what they inherently believe about themselves and the way that they approach the world are all intricately tied up with one another. So, I
0: mean, there might be something to that. I do think that Knock at the Cabin works much better than the last few Shyamalan pictures I've seen. Mm -hmm. Like, I did not care much at all for old, (laughs) hated glass. Maybe the less said about glass, the better. (laughs) Um, I think that Knock at the Cabin, at least, it does work... Partially for me, I I was kind of engaged by the the thought experiment that it presents us with. Mm -hmm. And I think the as far as it goes, the the characters work well in that context. I think maybe the the turn it takes towards the end where that theme of belief is made explicit and where it takes a blatantly spiritual turn. This isn't just any old apocalypse without going into spoilers. This mm-hmm. there's a it, this is a very specific kind of apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's where it loses me because it feels like Shyamalan is wanting me to invest more meaning in the story than the beetroot potboiler premise can really sustain. <laughs> um, and that's... That I think that's kind of maybe something that happens to him a lot where he's got these these very high concept thrillers that um, just aren't developed in a way that allows you to have that level of buy-in with them.
1: Hmm, hmm. So it would have been deeper maybe if he didn't try to imbue it with a level of depth. I find that kind of interesting because I keep coming back to Dave Bautista's performance and it feels as though... He's working in a register where his character is very top line, kind of a sketch of a character. And yet the way that Dave Bautista embodies him makes him both a symbol of something very big and scary. And the casting department did a great job. The cinematography does a great job, too, of making use of just his bulk as a person. He's a very large man. And you feel the size of him and the menace behind that size very keenly with the way that he's shot and the way that he's blocked But there's also um, kind of an emotional depth to him and I don't know how much of this is in the script and how much of this is just what he's bringing to the performance but Dave Batista really knows how to imbue a lot of depth in a very simple line read and a lot of the line reads a lot of the lines that he's given are just so, simple sentences, this is what I am going to do and this is how I am going to go about doing it. And most of the time, he's actually speaking to the daughter character who's quite young and it feels as though he is still addressing her as though she's a person, but in terms that she can understand. And the gravity of those line readings, I think, makes me almost believe what he's selling, but again, not quite because the movie keeps trying to draw that theme out explicitly.
0: I mean, I, I agree with you. Dave Batista gives a really good performance in this film way better than it. He needed to, I think. Hmm. Um, I, I think the secret to his, his success in knock at the cabin is uh, he, I think he underplays. So like you said, he does kind of have these lines that are very matter of fact, like he's, you know, he's obviously his character is, has determined the best strategy for me to convince this family of the truth of what I'm saying isn't to like beg them isn't try to isn't to try to be uh, very uh emotional about it. just you know just the facts and mm-hmm. you know acknowledge that it's a uh, very uh out of the ordinary situation to say the least but <laughs> but also not uh hit that note too hard, I guess. And I think Batista, whether whether that's something that he was specifically directed to, to do or whether that was something that he just kind of had an instinct for, I think it works really well. There's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of roiling currents underneath that still surface mm-hmm. in Leonard, but um, Dave Batista is able to make it... Um, just barely apparent that there is a lot of roiling emotion under the surface, but he doesn't, there's not a whole lot of showiness to the way that that comes out. And I think that's thrown into sharper relief by uh, Jonathan Groff and Ben Aldridge as the, as the married couple here. I think they're, they overplay a little bit. And I Mm. think that's, it's, it's too much. (laughs) Um, It's, it's just, it's, almost like they're trying to muscle the screenplay into being something um, emotionally believable for the audience. And I think that's just not going to (laughs) happen. And I think Batista, by contrast, kind of hits on the idea that just underplay it and, and rely on the, uh, the contrast between the underplaying and the overcooked premise maybe to kind of, create some sort of alchemical magic to bring the audience along.
1: Hmm, yeah. I know you don't like dealing in hypotheticals and what could have been, but I am genuinely curious to know what would have happened if he had overplayed it or had had brought his performance kind of up to the same register that the movie's in. Because you're right, it is a very different register than I think probably anybody else is playing. And that's not to say that the rest of the performances didn't work for me. It felt like a lot of the actors in this movie knew what kind of a story they were telling, and they were committed to it. But that level of underplaying, I think, lends Leonard a, a pretty spectacular amount of of dignity and force, and it almost makes him feel more real than everybody else who's around him.
0: He is the only character maybe who who feels like he's got interiority, maybe because you get the sense that there's a lot going on inside him, that he's just kind of trying to Contain, hmm. and none of the other characters do that. All the other characters, their their anxiety, their fear, their um, all everything that's going on inside them is all out in the open for, for the audience to see. Hmm. Batista is the only one who seems to be really not doing that at all. Again, whether that was Shyamalan directing Batista to do that, or whether Batista just kind of instinctually went that went there. Either way, I think it really works. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been... I would have been really interested to see more diversity in the emotional in the emotional registers because we kind of mm-hmm. get Batista and everyone else and it would have been nice to kind of get a more of a spectrum maybe of reactions to the situation.
1: Hmm. I don't know if I would have known what to do with the movie at that point. I do think, though, that there is a measure of... I don't know, a measurement or measured tone. Like I've, I've mentioned before, that I think, I feel like this movie is kind of a, a mid-tier movie. And what I mean by that is it kind of feels like a beach read where the premise is going to be a little bit gonzo, but we're going to treat it with that level of earnestness. And I think some of that earnestness comes through in the camera work and in the blocking. Like, like I'd mentioned before, Shyamalan's very good at tension. And he's doing some interesting stuff with the way that he blocks... Dave Batista in particular, um, just allowing the bulk of his body to take up most of the screen and then also to separate the other characters. Like, it almost feels as though Batista is literally and figuratively and physically anchoring this movie in that he's the center of gravity for the room, regardless of where the camera is. Whenever he is on camera, you kind of can't look away from him. And part of that is the performance. And then part of that is just the way that he's been framed. But quite often, he's framed so that he is physically in between Eric and Andrew, so that he is separating them. He's trying to drive a wedge between the two of them. And whether or not he's actually successful, at the very least, the movie believes that he should be able to see out his mission because of the force of his convictions and because of the force of his argument. I believe that he believes his argument. I don't know that I fully believe his argument and I kind of wish that I had been brought along to that level of belief in that argument.
0: I mean, it's interesting that he his his bulk, like he's just he's a big guy mm-hmm. and just the size of him in that room where the majority of the film's action takes place kind of is a literalization of the the more abstract dilemma which is that there's no getting around this um, this problem is like they have to either choose whether you know whether or not they believe this guy, and what's going to happen if they choose not to believe him, mm-hmm. and maybe bringing it back around to that question of belief is that's kind of the nature of belief is it's sort of it's an act of will. You can't really get around the question of you know what do you believe and how is that going to <laughs> affect the way you uh, behave, the choices that you make. I think i without i'm I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this without giving too much away because mm-hmm. I feel like signs as you mentioned at the beginning of the segment is a more optimistic film mm-hmm. in, in the way that it thinks about about belief about um the idea of being this there a greater design that we're all a part of. knock at the cabin is almost like the opposite side of the coin of that in in some ways hmm. just in in the ways that the dilemma of belief is presented to the audience and kind of the the implications of it for what this cosmos looks like versus the cosmos of signs mm-hmm. i found it to be not very satisfying <laughs> <laughs> not very satisfying probably because i believe more in a cosmos like signs than a cosmos like the one in Knock at the Cabin. Yeah,
1: I think even if I had been completely brought along for the journey that Leonard was trying to bring everybody else along with in Knock at the Cabin, I still probably would have rejected this universe anyway just because it did ultimately feel so bleak. I don't know if there's any other way to get around that though.
0: I mean, and it's not bleak so much because it's depressing. It's more just like it. the the bleakness for me at least comes from the idea that faith in this universe means believing in something very different than Mm -hmm. faith in the universe of signs. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a bummer that if if we live in – knock at the cabin's world mm-hmm. <laughs> at least agreed well listeners that is our review of knock at the cabin it's out this weekend in wide release if you get a chance to see it and have some thoughts to share Shyamalan tends to invite very polarized reactions so I'm really looking forward to our mailbag next week you can of course tweet us at SeeBelievePod pod on twitter or shoot us an email at seeing and believing capc at gmail.com looking forward to hear from you Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about a movie that I really like, at least. We'll see what Sarah says when we talk about Take Shelter in the Watchlist segment. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, it's inevitable that since the Oscars were recently announced that you know, a lot of people are going to be going back and maybe filling in some of the gaps uh, in their 2022 movie watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and the good news for us is that as they do that, they maybe go back and revisit some of our older episodes of Seeing and Believing and see what they thought of it. So Ron Sturry wrote in uh, to share his thoughts on the Banshees of Inishir, and this was a film that we reviewed way back at the beginning of November in Seeing and Believing number 357. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ron had a chance to see it. He liked it quite a bit. He had a lot of thoughts the email was really thought-provoking to read we don't have time unfortunately to read the entirety of it on the air but ron had some really interesting thoughts to share about specifically the exchange in banshees uh, about niceness the one that happens between colin ferrell's patrick and Brenton gleason's column mm-hmm. uh, their column obviously is of the mindset that very few things really last art is one of them and patrick thinks that Niceness is one of them as well and how that's it breaks his heart that he is not getting any niceness at all from Colm in that moment. Ron had some thoughts on that scene. He he mentioned that he really felt a lot for Patrick and Colm in that scene, specifically about their spirituality. Ron writes, We all want to be remembered for something in our life. But our faith is the only thing that gives us a fighting chance to do that. I wish as a Jesus follower that that their faith was more real in their lives rather than just a ticket to get out of purgatory, Mm -hmm. to be a part of the final kingdom of God, whatever that looks like. And I mean, I think that uh, that's really true that the Banshees of Incheon really (laughs) makes you feel for these characters and kind of wish that they they had that something that they're not getting mm-hmm. from, from each other, maybe from the world around them, uh, maybe from their faith. Um, it's a thought-provoking film for for sure. And Ron had l- some really kind words for Martin McDonough's writing mm-hmm. in that scene. And 100%. In fact, I would say that Banshees probably should win the the, the screenplay Oscar.
1: Yeah. For for, for for best for sure. original screenplay absolutely. Yep, yeah, thank you for the email Ron. Um we really appreciate it, especially those thoughts. Um yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like Banshees of Inisherin through the strength of its writing not only makes me feel for those characters but also feel with those characters and especially feel the depths of that despair. Um in ways that make me really happy that I'm not in their plight. And that makes me pity them even more, I think. So very strong writing on Martin McDonough's part and uh, just an incredible movie all around. If you haven't had the chance to catch up with it, definitely please do.
0: Yeah, it's a good one. I'm sure there will be plenty of chances to do that uh, as we get closer to Oscar time. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, As we get closer to Oscar time, we're also thinking, I don't know, a a little bit apocalyptically about the world (laughs) right now. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if
0: I'd get that. uh, that
1: I mean, it is February. It is the dead of February. So I'm thinking apocalyptic thoughts. So um, that kind of ended up in our twitter question for the week um we just wanted to know what's your favorite movie about the apocalypse and we got some really good answers in here we won't be able to read them all but there were a couple in here that i found thought-provoking partly because i just hadn't seen some of these movies before uh so christian hammaker wrote in to say a somewhat recent purchase of the excellent kino Lorber. Blue-ray reminded me that Miracle Mile is my favorite of the genre Kevin have you caught up with this movie
0: I have not I'm I've heard of it but it is not one that I've I've seen for myself
1: maybe a leap of faith watch list pick for the both of us because that's one that i have not seen actually um lindsey dunn also wrote in to say seeking a friend for the end of the world and i really appreciate like the the range of different kinds of apocalyptic movies that you can have you can have something that's um a little bit more thoughtful and a little bit less um i don't know mad max and then you can also just go all the way to mad max if you really want to too it's definitely speaking my language anyway (laughs) Kevin, do you have a favorite apocalypse movie?
0: I I do. I mean, I have a lot of favorite apocalypse movies. I'm a very I'm very easy when it comes to apocalypses and dystopias. It's just something that vibes with my own mindset. Don't so you can read into that however you want. I guess it but is
1: February. So. I
0: I eventually settled on um, you know an, an oldie but a goodie. I mean, Doctor Strange Love mm. is a wonderful movie about uh, an apocalypse brought that we bring on ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And the combination of, you know, darkness in that film, but also just the absurdity, just how, how sometimes the only way to cope is to laugh, to keep from crying, I think is um, really wonderful in that film. And, It's one that grows on me the more I rewatch it. Every time I rewatch it, I feel like I love it more. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just, it's a tremendous film.
1: It's funny and it's heartbreaking at the same time. And and Kubrick does a really great job with that movie. Surprise, Kubrick, very good at making movies. I I
0: hear he's made one or two good ones in his time.
1: (laughs) So my own pick is one that's a little bit more on the quiet and the more recent side. It's Karen Kusama's The Invitation, which came out in 2015. It's about a group of people who have been invited to partake in a dinner party together, and the end of the world may or may not be nigh. And I kind of want to just leave it at that. It's one of those movies that I think is easy to just say, oh, it's a meditation on grief, or it's a meditation on loss. And it is all of those things, but I think it's also... An interesting portrait of the ways that different people's beliefs can color their actions and you can n- still never really fully fathom them even after they've told you everything that they believe about the world and about themselves and about you. It's quietly unsettling until suddenly suddenly it isn't. Um, and it really packed a wallop for me when I watched it. So that's, that's a movie that stuck with me for sure.
0: The Invitation has been hanging out in my streaming queue for a long time because it just seems like it would be right up my alley i haven't had a chance to catch up with it yet but watch list maybe this will be the the thing that spurs me to do it for sure
1: (laughs) excellent you got a good life curtis i think that's the best compliment you can give a man take a look at his life and say that's good It's <clears throat> no Bye. What's the matter, with you curse? It sounds like thunder.
0: What sounds like thunder? I've been having these dreams. They always start with a kind of storm.
1: Missed you at church this morning, Curtis. Thinking about cleaning up that storm shelter out back. What the
0: hell have you
1: been? I know. I'm sorry. I had to run in here. When I build out the tornado shelter in my backyard, I could use some help. The hell you want to do that for? This needs to be done. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen. We watch it, and then we discuss it. So, Kevin, you picked a movie that was appropriately apocalyptic to pair with Knock at the Cabin. This is Jeff Nichols' 2011 movie, Take Shelter, which was kind of a breakout for him and also for Michael Shannon. It's also got Jessica Chastain in there, which I'm assuming was also a factor potentially. Mm -hmm. We might as well just get right into it. Take Shelter is about Curtis, played by Michael Shannon, who dreams of a thunderstorm every night. The rain is like motor oil and anyone who's left out in it becomes hostile and inhuman. And with every passing day, his dreams and his anxiety grow worse and worse until he finds himself compelled to build out the storm shelter that he has in his backyard. He wants to protect his wife, Samantha, who's played by Jessica Chastain, and his daughter, Hannah, played by Tova Stewart, from this growing storm, but it's unclear if he needs to protect them from an actual storm or potentially from himself. So it's kind of apocalyptic. There's flashes of an impending doom hanging over this family, and it's unclear whether or not it's real or not. So a lot of this movie is structured more like a psychological thriller than anything else. And and Kevin, I was curious to know, what distinguishes this movie from other psychological thrillers for you?
0: Yeah, uh I mean I think rewatching it this time around I think what really makes Tick Shelter for me is the performances above all else. I think that obviously the directing is is really strong. I love Jeff Nichols. I wait with bated breath for his next project. Um I think he's he's really good at a lot of things. Um but one thing that I think he's he's very good at is writing engaging characters and shaping the performances of his cast to really highlight the complexities of those characters. So when I first saw Take Shelter, and I think a lot of the conversation around it often focuses on this element as well, I thought a lot about the the supposed ambiguity of the central story. Like, is Michael Shannon, are these visions that he's seeing, premonitions of something that's actually going to happen... Or is it all in his head? Kind of like a standard sort of psychological thriller trope. But watching it the second time, I think it's actually not all that ambiguous. I think it's relatively clear um, as the film goes on that this is – the visions that he's having are at least partially a product of some mental health issues that that he is having. Mm -hmm. And – for me, that frees up the rest of the film to be not so much about an apocalypse or about kind of the ambiguity of, is it all in his head or isn't it? It's more about, well, if it is all in his head, how does he cope with that? Mm-hmm. And how does his family cope with that as well? Mm-hmm. And that I think is the kernel of this of this film. And I think that's kind of what sets it a, above sets it apart from films like Knock at the Cabin where there's kind of the central mystery of, you know, what's actually going to happen. What, how much of this can we believe? And it's more just about these are just people who love each other, and they're going. One of them is going through an extreme time in their lives, and that's kind of that's the dy- the dynamic that has the central interest for me. And I think the way that Shannon plays it in the way that. Uh, Chastain, I think, plays it as well. Mm-hmm. I think she might even be the better performance in this film, showing this um, this character who she at least doesn't know whether it's all in his head or not, and yet she chooses to stick with him anyway through that. Mm-hmm. And I think that lends an emotional power to this um, this kind of psychological tension in the film that maybe is missing from other similarly pitched stories.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think Michael Shannon's the driving force behind this movie, and Jessica Chastain is the anchor. And I don't mean in terms of an anchor that's that's dragging the movie along. I think that she really serves to ground this movie. And I think one of my problems with most psychological thrillers is that sometimes you are so deep in one character's head that you really lose all sense of reality and that is the point of a lot of psychological thrillers like that's that's part of the appeal I think. but this movie is is kind of a marvel because you get a very good sense for what it is like to be inside Curtis's head and you also have a very good sense for, the emotional and psychological reality of the other characters who exist around him in a way that feels very deeply textured and layered and a little bit more real to life. I think this movie knocked me flat on my heels and I was not expecting it to. So much of it just comes even just down to the production design and the way that this movie is filmed. Like Jeff Nichols is is treating this story very matter-of-factly. It doesn't feel like he's trying to put any polish or sheen on it. This really does feel like a movie about characters who actually live in the house in which they are living. Like, sometimes when you watch a movie, you can kind of feel the polish of the set decoration and the set dressing. And this movie feels so lived in that I didn't really question the reality of it at all, just down to the way that the kitchen is decorated, like there's a spice rack over over the stove. Um, And it looks like, believably like one of my neighbor's houses. And the performances for all of these characters feel like people that I could potentially run into in my neighborhood. There's nothing too extraordinary about them, but the way that the, especially the leads, just draw out those character ticks and foibles as they're trying to grapple with the idea of being alive either in a universe where there is a storm coming or grapple with the idea of being alive in a universe where they believe that a storm is coming, but they can't actually believe whether or not that's true. Um, It just feels so textured and so real. That I I don't know like I, it just kind of knocked me back and I felt as though I was in Curtis's head and I also felt as though I was in Samantha's head and I don't know it just kind of brought me along in a way that I wasn't fully expecting so
0: well it's the sort of film Nichols Nichols is writing is such that he doesn't just have his characters talk about how you know money is a little tight for them he mm-hmm. doesn't just uh, kind of establish that with a, a few scenes about how they may not have the nicest house or the nicest things. He has just these really wonderful touches where um, they've got kind of this uh, this coffee can that they keep their cash in for their vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a scene where uh, Curtis sits down and with a pen and paper kind of like charts out the budgeting for uh the underground shelter that he spends most of the film building mm-hmm. to try to protect his family from this storm that may or may not be coming and i think all of those those little touches come together to i think textured is a really good way to describe it actually it it feels very much like a portrait of a of a family that is un- understood from the inside out rather than just sort of like constructed to fit into a story Mm. and that i think is the is the nickel's touch that gives it its magic and that is i think what really sells the the central tension of the of the story which is um curtis not quite sure if what he sees is all in his head the fear that he feels about losing himself and the toll that that will take on his family Mm um that that central tension of – isn't so much as is the apocalypse really going to happen. It's are the things that I'm seeing going to destroy my family mm. and – that's its own kind of apocalypse.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also, if the things that I am seeing are not actually real, am I going to destroy my family too? You really get a lot of that tension um, just in Michael Shannon's performance and, and the way that he holds his shoulders and the way that he carries that anxiety on his face. It's a remarkable performance.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's telling. I mean, the, so the the dream sequences that we see in this film, mm-hmm. right? Like the, I thought like, they're really, they're creepy without being sort of the kind of a gotcha kind of yes. kind of scares. Um, there's there's this ominousness about them that I think is just tremendous. Yeah. That Nichols doesn't overplay his hand in making these as as boo scary as they could possibly be. He just lets them be kind of Lynchian, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, it's wonderful. But I think for me, on the second viewing, the the most The part that really got me most on the edge of my seat was the scene where Curtis uh, loses his job. He gets fired because he's been Mm. borrowing equipment from work um, unbeknownst to his boss in order to build the shelter. He gets found out. He gets fired. And he only gets two weeks of benefits left. And that little detail of he only gets two weeks more of his work's health insurance and we already have – had it established that his daughter's upcoming surgery is in six weeks. Mm-hmm. That's the scariest thing in the movie, mm-hmm. not the not the apocalypse, but the question of how am I going to get my daughter the surgery that she really needs if i'm not if I don't have benefits?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: the fact that Nichols makes that such a gut punch in a movie about the literal apocalypse or what could be the apocalypse, i think I think that's telling about where his interests truly lie and uh, where the audience's interests in the end really lie as well.
1: Yeah, Michael Shannon asks the question about two-thirds of the way through the movie, I think. He he pulls over the car to watch a lightning storm play, and nobody else uh, seems to be paying any attention to it. And he asks this question of, is anybody else watching this? Like, can anybody else see this? And you can sense kind of the the pain in his voice and on his face as he's watching that storm unfold over his head. And that storm could very well actually still be there. And it could also just be the storm of, I need to be able to protect and provide for my family. And I have no other outlet or way to be able to understand what's going on with me emotionally and so I have to try to protect them without showing or demonstrating any of that pain and I think the strength of that performance is in his willingness to be very vulnerable and then also be able to show the shame that comes with that level of vulnerability it's in the heft of his shoulders it's in the way that he holds himself when he's talking to his wife um and that scene that you mentioned where he tells his wife that he's lost his job. He he just walks into the kitchen and he says, well, I just got fired. The way that he holds himself is... Just kind of bracing for that storm and knowing that it's going to hit, knowing what's at stake for his family and for his daughter, and knowing that his wife is going to be furious because she knows exactly why he's lost his job. And she knows that it is actually his fault. He's in construction. He's borrowed some very heavy and expensive and dangerous equipment for the purposes of building out this shelter. And he did it knowing that he could potentially cost somebody their life or an injury or potentially his own job as well. And yet he did it anyway. And there's there's so much of that shame that's kind of layered into the admittance that he's been fired. And then the rage that Jessica Chastain displays is so focused. Um, When she confronts him, I believe it. I believe her walking out. And then I also believe her coming back. And I think so much of that is because we've already established through a lot of strong character work throughout the movie up until this point that she's worried for him and she's worried for his mental well-being and she has already made the decision that she is going to stay no matter what she doesn't have to say that she's going to stay we just know that she's going to do it yeah i don't know (laughs) that relationship just does so much work to anchor and fuel the tension and then also the gravity that holds the story together
0: yeah, the the relationships here are really the the film's secret sauce, so to speak. And I loved how you described Chastain's performance as focused, because that's one hundred percent right. Is that even though she's she's playing a role that in a lesser film she'd be sort of like you know the wife character, right? Like the the one who just doesn't kind of who doesn't understand who's there mostly to provide an emotional lever to pull on the male protagonist, right? But in Nichols's film. She obviously is is not just her own person. She's she's somebody who, at every point of the story, has agency. It's his obsession isn't something that's happening to her. It's something that's happening in her life, and then she chooses to respond mm-hmm. by staying. Um, and that I think is um, I mean it's it's a wonderful bit way to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way for it, it's great that Nichols accords her that kind of personhood <laughs> mm-hmm. um, instead of just treating her as more or less a prop in uh, Curtis's story um, and I think it also it mean it makes the climax of this story um, that much more affecting where Curtis is essentially confronted with the fact that he has to deal with this not on his own he has support but the the work that he has to do in order to grapple with his his visions and the implications for his family, that's something he that that is his responsibility. He doesn't have to face it alone, though. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Nichols is so good at kind of fleshing out that family dynamic. I think it's a wonderful picture of family in general. Just the the ways that the bonds of love um, are so are strengthened among them, even though one of them is is. In this case, Curtis, one of them is doing things that are straining those bonds. Mm-hmm. Um, they still hold tight.
1: Yeah, yeah. We haven't even really talked about the extended family or anybody else within the universe of this movie other than Curtis and Samantha, Shannon and Chastain. Um, I think it's telling, too, that Nichols chooses to populate The world of these characters a little bit further out than that like this could very easily be just a two-hander and it would still be extremely compelling storytelling but there is a sense that more is at stake than just this marriage or just this family as well Um, we meet a couple of samantha's family members for sunday dinner and um, curtis is late And Samantha and her family have just been waiting at the dinner table, waiting for him to come home. And as soon as they decide that they're going to eat, he finally shows up. And Samantha's father just kind of pointedly asks Curtis, missed you in church today. Like, when are you going to be coming? And I feel like that tells you all that you need to know about not just Curtis's dynamic with his father-in-law, but also Curtis's dynamic with his wife without there ever being a a moment where she confronts him about going to church. Like there's clearly an arrangement that the two of them have where they understand that she is the one who is going to be attending and he is staying home. I think it gives you a very good picture of his and her spiritual lives without them actually explicitly having to sit down or pray or scoff at the other's beliefs or anything like that either. Again, it feels very textured and it feels very subtle. And it also gives you a sense of the precipice that this family is standing on the edge of as Curtis starts to slide further and further into crisis And you don't really need any more detail other than that. Like, that one line does so much work. Um, And the way that Curtis reacts to it also does enough work to tell you that this is a conversation that has happened over and over again. And it is a conversation that will continue to happen unless something changes dramatically, which it does.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really telling that we've spent most of the time uh, talking about Take Shelter. We've been talking about the... (laughs) The family relationships, the the everyday drama of of money and uh, and extended family, that stuff is really the heart of Take Shelter. And I think that's why I enjoy coming back to it mm-hmm. and why something like knock at the cabin is sort of like diverting, but I'm not really that invested in it at the end of the day, and I think that's because it gets that backwards. Mm-hmm. And I think Nichols knows that the apocalypse is interesting because it's the end of all people, not because it's the end of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a good point. So I am curious to know, though, um, do you read the apocalypse literally, in Take Shelter?
0: I was curious to know how you took the the last uh, closing minutes of this film as well, because I did say that I think for most of the, Film, it's pretty clear, at least to me, that it is all in his head. Mm-hmm. And then we get those final few minutes when uh, it seems like his wife and his daughter can see what's going on as well. Mm-hmm. My interpretation of that, and it might be crackpot, is that that is also a dream sequence, except now, uh, instead of it being Curtis Alba. By himself encountering the storm that's coming for him. He now has his wife and daughter who are on his side mm. in that in that vision. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm open to alternative readings.
1: I don't have anything particularly deep. I did kind of read the ending as literal. But I think that it still packs an emotional wallop because it is still his wife and daughter recognizing the crisis that Curtis is in and saying, like, it's going to be okay because we're here with you, even though everything clearly is not okay at that moment in time. It almost doesn't matter if it is literal or not.
0: Yeah, I think, that, me, that's the, the, the real true readings. it doesn't matter what's really happening. What really matters is the emotion of seeing that family united, whereas before it was just him against the apocalypse by himself.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly.
0: Well, I'm glad that you. Uh, I'm glad that you watched it. I'm. I'm glad I got to share it with you.
1: I'm glad I watched it too. Yeah, thank you. This was a really, really good movie, and I think I'm going to be thinking about it for a long time.
0: Well, listeners, if you've seen Take Shelter, I know some of you have because you you've talked about with us in in previous feedback. Uh, if you want to share some more thoughts about that, we, we'd love to hear from you about it. Jeff Nichols is a seeing believing favorite, so I'm I'm sure there's lots of Good discussion to be had about that, um, but that'll do it for this segment. Next week, Sarah, you've got a watch list pick that I'm interested in. Maybe with, I don't know what's what I'm going, what to expect out of it. I guess.
1: <laughs> so next week, um, first we're going to be doing a bit of a departure from our. Movie review structure in that we are finally reviewing another TV show after Lord of the Rings. Uh, listeners, we're going to be talking about the first four episodes of Poker Face, created by one Ryan Johnson and starring one Natasha Leone. I am excited to talk about this TV show in part because it's kind of a throwback to detective stories that are a little bit more episodic. And the hook for this show is that Natasha Leone's character can instantly tell when somebody is lying to her. And she uses that force to be able to solve crimes, which is a great conceit, honestly, and. Um, The movie that we are pairing with this TV show is called Bad Times at the El Royale, which was written and directed by Drew Goddard, came out in 2018, kind of bombed at the box office, and I'm excited to share it because I truly genuinely love this movie and I love what it has to say about people's identities and who they say they are and who they present themselves as and then who they actually turn out to be. It's also kind of a throwback in that it feels a little bit more like, um, I don't know, a a beach read almost murder Hmm. mystery of a movie, but it's doing some interesting themes with those questions of identity and who we believe other people to be and who they show themselves to be as well. So I'm excited to share this movie.
0: Well, I I did really like Drew Goddard's uh, The Cabin in the Woods. Mm. So I'm really looking, I'm, I'm interested to see what he did with his follow up to that one. So We'll find out in a week, I guess. Yeah, we will. Well, that does it for this week. However, Seeing and Believing is brought to you, as always, by the Christ in Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan.
1: I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson.
0: And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing